0: turn in the scriptures to Galatians chapter 2. This is our third study in this letter that Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia. And today, in the passage we study, which we're in the second half of chapter 2, today we come to the very heart of the letter. We come to the truth that is the most significant question for humanity. The question that is most significant for humanity is, how can I be right with the God by whom and for whom I exist? Today's text answers that central, significant question. Of Paul's 13 letters in the New Testament, Galatians is the one he wrote earliest. He wrote it in AD 48, less than 20 years after the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. About a year after Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, Paul himself had been miraculously converted when Jesus, the risen Messiah, confronted him personally. And immediately, Paul began preaching Jesus as the Messiah. For the next 15 years, Paul would grow as a disciple, and as a disciple maker, until around 46, his home church in Antioch of Syria would send him and Barnabas on the first church planting mission. It was a two-year mission to plant churches in the modern region uh, of Turkey, mostly, and there, amid much persecution, God used these men Paul and Barnabas, to plant churches. A few of them were planted in the southern region of Galatia, in the cities of Pisidian Antioch, and Iconium, and Lystra, and Derbe. All those towns were in Galatia, in the southern region of Galatia, and Paul had planted churches. About a year after that church planting mission ended, Paul writes this letter back to these churches that he had risked his life to plant and so deeply cared about. The issue for writing the letter, or the problem which necessitated the writing of the letter, is that many of the converts in these churches that Paul and Barnabas had planted had come from a Jewish background for their whole lives. These new converts had lived under the law of Moses. They had been circumcised. They had followed all of the religious rituals and the, the the ceremonial rituals they had eaten what they were supposed to and not eaten what they were not supposed to these converts to christ within the first year have teachers who start coming into town saying you've heard about jesus and that's great you've heard that jesus is the messiah and he is but you don't need to leave judaism You don't need to leave Moses behind. You need Jesus and Moses. You've been saved. You you want to have a relationship with God. Coming to Jesus is the first step. Now you need to obey the law. The law that's been in effect for the last thousand years. The law that you guys are familiar with. If you add the law to faith in Jesus, you'll be saved. It'll finish the work of, That Jesus began. You need to combine Jesus and Moses. That's putting it very bluntly. They probably put it in much more deceptive terms. But they were saying, You guys have lived under the law your whole lives. Continue. You don't need to let it go. And Paul is deeply concerned that the people are being swayed by these false teachers. And so he writes this letter. And what he writes in the letter is essentially, There's one gospel, only one gospel that can save, and it is the gospel that I'm preaching, not the gospel that these people are, the so-called gospel that they're preaching. And he proves that his gospel is the one and only gospel by describing his own history. He says, the gospel that I'm preaching came from God directly. I didn't learn it from any of the apostles. And then he goes on to say, even though I didn't learn it from any of the apostles, over a decade after I had been preaching this gospel throughout the Roman world, I checked what I was preaching with the apostles. They fully confirmed what I was preaching and said, you don't need to tweak it at all. So Paul says, my gospel is from God. It's not from the apostles, but all the apostles affirmed it. And in today's passage, he's going to go a step farther and he's going to say, and in fact... My gospel corrects any of the apostles if and when we go astray. Galatians 2, 11 through 21. But when Cephas, that's the Aramaic name for Peter. When Cephas came to Antioch, that's where Paul and Barnabas were, that was where their home church was. It's about a hundred miles, a little more than a hundred miles north of Jerusalem. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For certain men came from James. He's the lead pastor down in Jerusalem. Before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles, non-Jews. But when they came from Jerusalem, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. That term, the circumcision party, indicates that these men who came up from Jerusalem believed it was necessary for followers of Jesus to be circumcised as Jews in order to be right with God, in order to be a full part of God's family. Verse 13. And the rest of the Jews, those who were eating with Peter, they acted hypocritically along with him. In other words, they stopped eating what they were eating and with the people they were eating, they acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas publicly before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, when the Jews aren't around, How can you, and he's saying, now by your opposite behavior, how can you now force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So Paul is confronting the lead apostle with the gospel for hypocrisy. He's basically saying, Peter... You're saying that the gospel is one thing, but you're living, at least in certain situations, like the gospel's another thing. Now, I think Paul's confrontation of Peter continues into verses 15 and following. I think it goes to the end of the chapter. Because in verse 16, he's going to say, we're Jews by birth. He's continuing to talk with Peter. And here he gets right to the heart of the matter. He confronts him for hypocrisy, and then he goes for the center of the matter. We ourselves are Jews by birth, Peter, and we're not like those Gentile sinners. What he's saying is, both you and me have grown up with the law. We're not pagans. And yet, verse 16, we know. I can hear Paul's pleading. You and I, we grew up the same. Yet we know that people are not justified by the works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? certainly not for if I rebuild what I tore down I prove myself to be a transgressor now what Paul writes in those two verses you might have been reading with me up to that uh, up to verse 16 saying I'm tracking with you I'm tracking. wait wait I'm not following the logic of 17 and 18 what he writes in verses 17 and 18 is challenging And uh, there are many ways that you can potentially interpret it. I'm going to share with you how I interpret what Paul is saying here. In verse 17, he's basically telling Peter something like this. Peter, the accusation against us is that now that we've been saved, we can ignore God's law. We can break God's law. We're no longer bound by the law. So does Jesus lead us to be lawbreakers? And he says absolutely not following Jesus does not lead us to be lawbreakers that's a ludicrous thought and then in verse 18 Paul says now Peter here's what would make us transgressors you want to talk about transgression here's what would make us transgressors trusting Jesus as the only way to be right with God and then switching and saying Jesus isn't enough I need to obey the law in order for God to accept me that'd be transgressing I think that's the, 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 the way Paul sh- should be understood. It's not the only way that people suggest, but uh, I think that's what he's saying. <laughs> and then Paul offers Peter some counsel, some counsel for daily life. And in what we're about to read in verses 19 through 21, some of the most precious words in scripture, some of you have these words in your house, some of you, this is your favorite verse in all the Bible, verse 20. Paul writes, verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, in this weak body that's awaiting glory, this life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. I don't nullify the grace of God by teaching that circumcision is no longer needed, because if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Hmm. It's powerful. Here is the main point in what Paul is writing in Galatians two eleven through twenty one. The main point is sinners can't earn a not guilty status with God. We can be justified only by trusting Jesus and faith in Jesus fuels the Christian life from beginning to end. We can't earn a not guilty status with God. We can be justified only by trusting Jesus. We can't obey enough to be justified. It's only by trusting Jesus that we can be justified. And this faith that begins the Christian life is faith that continues every day through the Christian life. It's powerful. Now, I want to explain and apply each of the three paragraphs we read. The first paragraph is a description of a gospel confrontation, a confrontation for the sake of the gospel. Peter confronted Paul because he strayed from the gospel. It was a public confrontation because the hypocrisy was public. As the text puts it, Peter was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Now, I want to describe a little bit of what Peter was doing. I think all of us get the gist, but I want you to know that There's a lot of exploration that you can do in reconstructing the whole situation of how Peter was persuaded after years of preaching the gospel. But simply put, Peter knew better. Acts 10 records that Peter witnessed the conversion of Cornelius, a Gentile, a non-Jew. And Peter was told by God on that day... That he could eat with Cornelius and he could eat whatever Cornelius and his family ate. Peter did not have to follow the Jewish kosher laws anymore. He didn't have to separate himself from eating with Jews. He didn't have to follow the Jewish dietary laws anymore. In this new era since Jesus died and rose again, things were different and Peter knew it. Even more... Than the law situation. Peter had known by the coming of the Spirit on Cornelius and his household that non-Jews could be saved without becoming Jews. They didn't have to be circumcised. They didn't have to obey the Jewish law. Peter understood how salvation worked. And in fact, we don't know exactly when this incident between Paul and Peter takes place, but we know that it had been A few years at least, because Peter's coming up to Antioch in Syria. We knew it had been at least a few years, and Peter had been preaching the one true gospel in many places. But on this occasion, things changed. Some Jews who insisted on following the law came up from Jerusalem, and the text says Peter was overcome with fear about what they thought of him. The fear of man is a snare, Proverbs says. What Peter should have done when these guys came up and started criticizing, putting the critical eye on what he was doing, Peter should have said, guys, look at the way I'm eating. Look at what I'm eating. Look at who I'm eating with. According to the Lord Jesus himself, there is no sin in this. He should have said, since the Messiah came, The law has been fulfilled. We need to trust the Messiah. Period. Peter could have just been bold. Instead, he was overcome with fear. He changed his course of action and what he did by separating himself from the people he had been eating with and acting like he wasn't eating all those foods that he had been eating, what he did implicitly lied about the gospel he implicitly said through his actions you have to obey the Jewish law in order to be full Christian brothers and sisters and Peter was hypocritical and the gospel message that he preached in that moment was distorted the gospel was confused and that's why Paul confronted him this is a gospel confrontation I want to just pull out three life applications for us from these couple verses and the first is this if the apostles of jesus can be wrong then any christian and any christian leader can be wrong i mean one of the things that you have to react like when you read this passage is something like peter the rock I mean, the guy on whom Jesus is building his church, he's a hypocrite. Faithful leaders like James can have people in their circle of friends who are weak, maybe even false. Yeah. A strong teammate like Barnabas can be persuaded to make a really bad decision for the gospel. It's one of the ways we should react when we read a passage like this. Every Christian leader, parents, every Christian parent must take to heart that we can be wrong. We often are wrong. We are entrusted with the responsibility to be examples if we're Christian leaders to the flock. Or examples to our children if we're parents. And one of the ways that we consistently model Christianity, a healthy Christianity in our church and in our homes, is when we humbly repent when we're wrong. This is part of what it means to walk as a Christian. Christians are not perfect people, Christians are not people who never make mistakes. We learn from this passage that if the apostles of Jesus can be wrong, then any Christian and any Christian leader can be wrong. And every Christian must beware of exalting anyone to the point of they can do no wrong. We are so prone to do this, especially when that person has had a significant shaping influence on our lives. I think that this was Barnabas' error. I think he had deep respect for Peter. And in this instance, it went too far. Whether it's me, or whether it's another elder in our congregation, or maybe a favorite preacher or radio pastor, or maybe it's a favorite author, or maybe it's the Christian who led you to the Lord, you should have respect, but you should never, ever give them total allegiance. Total allegiance belongs to the Lord and to the truth of the scriptures and every Christian and every Christian leader gets measured accordingly. Second application of this gospel confrontation. Christian, you and I need to be careful about those with whom we will or won't fellowship. By fellowship, I'm not just referring to casually hanging out I'm referring to the sort of fellowship that implicitly communicates the people I'm with are Christians, or the people I'm refusing to be with are not Christians. We have to be really careful about calling someone a brother who doesn't believe the same gospel. We need to be really careful as leaders about leading our congregation to participate in unity worship services. With churches that don't believe the same gospel as we do. In fact, we shouldn't just be careful. We should not convey that we have unity with those with whom we do not have unity. Now, on the other hand, in keeping with Galatians 2, the issue is actually flipped. Refusing fellowship with those who are Christians who believe the same gospel as us, refusing fellowship with brothers and sisters in the Lord, also confuses the gospel. And many times this happens because we're concerned about what other people around us are going to think. We have to be careful both ways that our fellowship clarifies and does not muddy the gospel. Final application. You might have anticipated I would go here. True friends confront you when you need it. Paul confronted Peter. From every indication that we get in the rest of the New Testament, we can assume that Peter received this correction. He turned from his hypocrisy and he eventually thanked Paul for being a faithful friend. Let me give you two examples. In 1 Corinthians 3.22, which Paul writes six or seven years later, Paul considers Peter to be a gift to the church in Corinth. Or... A few years later, Peter is writing to the people he's discipling, 2 Peter 3.15, and he calls Paul our beloved brother, and he recommends careful reading of his letters. I think we can assume that Peter received this. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And this is so out of step with our culture. Our culture defines love as essentially affirmation no matter what. But true friends tell you not what you want to hear, but what you need to hear. So I say, believer, be this kind of friend who confronts when necessary. I'm thankful that many of you demonstrate this kind of friendship within our congregation and have demonstrated it to me, I, I tried to journal out a little bit in preparation for this message, but I can just say, dozens of times a year, I experience the correction from fellow believers, from friends. I experience the correction from my wife, for which I thank God, from my children on occasion. It's humbling. I thank God. I am so thankful for our team of fellow elders I submit myself to the input and the criticism of those with whom I team teach. I am so thankful for friends from from grad school who are still accountability partners, and every week or two we are constantly interacting, sharpening one another with this kind of feedback, and so many brothers in the congregation. I experience this all the time, and I want to say, Tri-County, let's keep doing it more and more and more. And believers, we are wise to pursue, to seek this kind of friendship, to seek out faithful friends who will confront us when necessary. Just before I leave this point, I want to make one side comment. Sometimes we debate whether an issue is serious enough to warrant confrontation, and it's not always easy to tell. But Paul's example shows us that when the issue is as serious as the gospel, it is certainly worth confronting. Second, there's gospel clarification. There's gospel confrontation, and then there's gospel clarification. I use the word clarification because Paul wasn't saying something that Peter didn't already know. According to verse 15, Paul knew that Peter knew that Jewish people needed to be saved just like non-Jewish people. Again, we don't know exactly when this confrontation happened, but we know that Peter and Paul had both been preaching the one true gospel publicly for several years. And these verses, verses 15 and 16, bring us right to the letter's heart. What is at the heart of the letter to the Galatians? If you wanted to, uh, around verse 16, around the number 16 in your Bible, just draw a heart. It will indicate this is the heart of the letter. What is at the heart of the letter is the term justified. It's used three times in verse 16. At the very heart of the letter is the issue of justification. The central issue of the whole letter is how is a person justified. Now in just a minute, I'm going to talk about how a person is justified. But before I do, I want to make sure that all of us either know or are reminded of what justification is. We're going to get to the how in just a second, but let's talk about the what. Justification is a legal term. It's exactly opposite the term condemnation. The term condemnation is something that you experience when the judge says you're guilty, you're condemned. Justification is the opposite Justification happens when a judge looks down at you and says, not guilty, or to state it positively, righteous. Justification, according to the scriptures, is not God making you righteous, changing your life so that you are righteous, and then saying, I've watched that person live a while, they're righteous, so I'm going to declare it. That's not justification according to the Bible. Justification is a once for all declaration that you are not guilty but righteous in his sight. God is not making us sinless. He's declaring us. He's declaring our status to be forever righteous. And now the question is, how? How? Three times, in verse 16, Paul says negatively how it doesn't happen. We cannot be justified by the works of the law. That is, by obeying all that God demands. So let's just take a little test. God demands that you love him and serve him with your whole being. Your thoughts, your words, your actions, your motivations, your desires. How, how are you going to do when you stand before the judge and are evaluated on that demand? Love me with all you are and have. God demands that you never take his name in vain but that you always represent him accurately. How are you doing? Never taking God's name in vain and always representing him accurately. He demands that you never lie, that you never slander another person or even desire another person to be slandered. He says, Do not commit adultery, even in your heart, Jesus accurately interpreted God's demand. How are you going to do when you stand before the judge who demands no lies, no slander, no adultery? How are you going to do? I've barely scratched the surface of God's demands. I haven't considered his demands for never covet, never complain always choose to be joyful in the Lord, to rejoice in the Lord. There are commands regarding always trusting the Lord and never fearing. There are demands regarding our family responsibilities and our responsibilities with our money and our responsibilities with our church family. How are you and I going to do when we stand before the judge and give an account on the basis of obedience to his demands? The works of the law don't justify us. The works of the law condemn us. Every one of us must take it to heart that there is not a chance that one of us could stand in God's courtroom and hope to be declared righteous on the basis of our obedience. Negatively, Paul says three times, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Positively, he says three times, justification is by faith in Jesus the Messiah. Faith in Christ the Messiah, Jesus. The only way to be justified by God is through trusting Jesus, not by obedience to the law. You say, how can this actually happen? It's because the judge has appointed a legal representative to stand in our place. According to the Bible, Jesus the Messiah is God's appointed substitute. Jesus is the one who lived and died in the place of all who would take refuge in him. As God prophesied in Isaiah, centuries before Jesus ever came, I'm reading Isaiah fifty three eleven. My righteous servant will justify many because he will bear their iniquities. Justification comes about through Jesus, the legal representative appointed by God the Father, to stand in the place of all of us lawbreakers. It's the only way justification happens. So verse 16, if we bore down into it, offers us two options for how to be justified. Either you try to earn your way through obedience, or you trust Jesus as your representative. The first is impossible. But it basically describes every religion in the world, including every false version of Christianity. They all essentially say the same thing. Try to be a good person. Try to live a good life hope that you'll get in but the one true gospel is different God confronts us it's good news but it begins here God confronts us as lawbreakers who are condemned before him and then he tells you there's no way you could ever work yourself out of a guilty sentence and then he says I've made a way for you. And that way is Jesus. I have appointed him to be your representative. He died in your place. He rose again to prove that the payment was made in full. Call on him. Trust him. Follow him. He is earth's king, the Messiah. And he is the one appointed advocate for a lawbreaker like you. Flee to him. And trust your life to Him. The third facet of today's passage is gospel counsel. Paul counseled Peter, the Galatians, and us to live every day trusting Christ. Paul concluded his confrontation of Peter with counsel on how Christians should live every day, how Peter should live every day, how every believer in Galatia and in in this tri-county region, how we should live every day. It's trusting Jesus. This is verses 19 and 20, where Paul stresses that we must realize, every Christian must realize that if we have trusted in Christ, then we have been united with Christ. Christian, You need the truth of verses 19 and 20. You've trusted in Christ. You're united with Christ permanently, spiritually, really, mystically. When I say mystically, I mean don't expect that you are going to feel it in your gut, it is true. It will one day be seen to be true that you're united with Jesus. But don't expect that every day you're going to feel it's true. You are united with Jesus. Paul stresses in verses 19 and 20, we must realize that we've been united with Jesus. And he stresses this union in three ways. In verse 19 first, he says, you need to realize I'm united with Christ's law-keeping and therefore i'm dead to trying to earn my justification. Christ kept the law. I think that's what Paul means when he says through the law i died to the law. It's through the law-keeping of Christ and through Christ's bearing of the punishment of the law that we die to the law. Similar to Romans chapter 7. I'm united to Jesus the perfect law-keeper. Jesus' perfect law-keeping has been imputed, legally credited to me. I don't have to earn God's smile. I need to trust Jesus. I'm dead to trying to earn God's smile through my obedience. I need to trust Jesus. Second facet of our union with Christ comes in verse 20. I'm crucified with Christ. I'm united with Christ's crucifixion. And that means I am freed from the penalties that my law breaking deserves. Christian, I hope every one of us is saying in our hearts, thank you, God. Free. Free from the penalty of the law. Because Christ, the perfect law keeper was crucified for me, the death-deserving lawbreaker. He died in my place as my substitute, bearing my punishment. Praise God! I must never, ever, ever return to living as if I need to earn my way out of punishment. God forbid. The third facet of our union comes later in verse 20. I'm united with Christ's resurrection. He says, nevertheless, I live, meaning I live in Christ. I'm empowered to live a new kind of life by the indwelling spirit of Christ in me. He actually says, Christ lives in me. Wow. Christians, be built up by your union, the truth of your union with Christ. You're united with Christ's law keeping you're united with Christ's crucifixion bearing the punishment for your law breaking and you're united with Christ's resurrection so that you can say I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me and you can say that even while you're in the flesh in this weak body that's awaiting glory I live every day until I see him By faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus rose again. He's alive. And I'm united with him forever. So the resurrection power of Jesus is at work in me. Propelling me. To love God. And keep fighting my sin. The resurrection power of Jesus is in me. To keep propelling me to grow in my love for the word and in my love for the church. Christ is at work in me. His resurrection power is in me, propelling me, propelling me to keep warring against worldliness and against selfishness. Paul concludes in verse 21, Christ didn't die for us in order to throw us back to the old way of trying to work our relationship with God. No. Christ died in order to justify us. He died in order to reconcile us to God. He he died for us so that we'd trust Him and stop trying to work for it. Trust Him alone. He's enough. That's how verse 21 ends. And here's where I end Christians, all of us, every day, need to be constantly reminded that our relationship with God does not depend on our performance. Every one of us, every day, I do not have a relationship with God based on my performance. It is so easy for us to slip back into legalistic ways of thinking, law-keeping ways of thinking. We so quickly slip back into thinking like, God must not love me because of all the ways I've disappointed him lately. Or to the contrary, you know what? I've had a couple good weeks. I, I think I can expect the smile of God. I, I've not been failing like I, I did in the past. I think I'm actually maybe starting to impress him and prove myself to him. These are Pagan ways of thinking. If you are thinking about relating to God on the basis of your performance, you're not relating with the God who's there. He doesn't have relationships with people on the basis of your good performance today or your poor performance tomorrow. The only way that we can have a relationship with the one true God is through faith in his appointed Messiah. The one true God enters into a relationship with those who trust his son. Period. Verse 20 has this precious thought and I want to end with some applications here. The only way Christians should live every day is by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't relate with God. I don't have a relationship with God on the basis of my performance. He relates with me on the basis of my union with his Messiah. I'm united to Jesus by faith and that's the only way I have a relationship with the one true God. So Christian, I wonder are you depressed today maybe you say I'm weary I feel like God is distant from me I'm drowning in stress in tiredness Paul I think would offer much counsel but I think the core of his counsel to you if you're weary and depressed would be Live by faith in Jesus who loved you and gave himself for you. When you trusted Jesus, the Holy Spirit united you to Jesus forever. No matter how you feel today, he is at work in you. You are united to him. Do not interpret your relationship with God on the basis of your weary feelings today. Look to Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Are you discouraged today? You may say, I I have failed so much recently. Live by faith in Jesus who loved you and gave himself for you. Do you think Jesus is surprised by your failure? According to the scripture, Jesus understood all your failures as he was dying for them. Jesus died for all of your sins. Jesus knew, if you will, the mess he was getting himself into when he in love committed himself to you. Trust Jesus. Who loved you and gave himself for you. Don't interpret your relationship with God on the basis of your past. Your long distant past or your immediate past. Interpret your relationship with God. I have a relationship with God because Jesus loved me and gave himself up for me. I wonder if this week in particular you're experiencing rejection from family. Or maybe you're frustrated or disappointed with Christians, your Christian family. I would say don't interpret your relationship with God, whether God loves you and is for you or not, based on others' opinions of you. Trust Jesus. It's only on the basis of Jesus as your representative that you have a relationship with God Don't look to others' opinions of you to affirm it. That will be up and down and up and down and up and down. Look to Jesus. He loved you. He gave himself for you so that you could be forever justified, righteous in God's sight. Maybe just a general category. You're just weighed down with hardships. It's one of those seasons, you say, when it rains, it pours. My kids are sick. Work is unbearable. I think I'm going to have to have surgery. And I woke up this morning and my car's not even working. In such situations, we are tempted to think, God, why are you against me? We interpret circumstances to to mean something about God and our relationship with God. God. Don't interpret God's love for you on the basis of today's or yesterday's experiences. Paul would say, live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself up for you. Do you see, Christians, we need this every day. We need this counsel. Keep living every day by faith in the Son of God Who loved you and gave himself for you. Our weak and struggling and often failing lives must be fueled by Christ's love. So that when people say, what drives your life? You say, Christ. To live is Christ. I'm trusting Christ. I got nothing but Christ. God tells me I'm united to Christ and I'm indwelt by Christ's spirit. I'm forever loved by Christ. To live as Christ. That's the counsel Paul gives us Christians. The Christian life is not just begun by faith in the Son of God. It is lived every single day by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, fix our eyes on Christ. May we live every day by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. I pray that we would face trials by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. God, I pray that we would face trials rejection by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. God, I pray that we would face failures and success by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. Fix our eyes on Jesus. For him, we are and will be forever thankful. Amen.